0: Good morning, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Monday, so this is an archive show first published as a newspaper column sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on December 20th of 2015 under the headline Oregon's Own Would-Be Fascist Dictator, Governor Charles H. Martin. Here we go. Remember General Jack D. Ripper? character from the 1964 movie Dr. Love, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, can you imagine what might have happened if General Ripper had been elected governor? For Oregonians just a few years ago, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch. In 1934, voters elected a retired major general named Charles Henry Martin, known to the soldiers assigned to his care during the First World War as Old Iron Pants. And although Martin isn't known to have gone on any anti-fluoridation rants or spluttered about precious bodily fluids, his political style was more than a little reminiscent of Ripper's. And, of course, it's not a work of fiction. Quote, If things come to a crisis, he wrote to a sympathetic fellow military man in 1937 while discussing the likelihood of a communist takeover in America, there are enough strong men left in the country to handle it properly. The Italians wouldn't submit. They organized their blackshirts. The Germans wouldn't submit, so they had their brown shirts and Hitler. I don't believe Americans will submit. Left unmentioned in this remark was any suggestion for who might play the role of the American strongman, analogous to Hitler or Mussolini, but it seemed clear that he felt himself to be up to the challenge if called upon to do so. Charles H. Martin stands athwart Oregon history like a cartoon supervillain, a larger-than-life caricature of a would-be fascist dictator. He established his own forces of secret police. His agents infiltrated every leftist organization in the state with undercover agents tasked with reporting, provoking, and occasionally soliciting perjured testimony. He responded to at least one labor strike by deploying the National Guard and state police with orders to shoot to kill. And according to historian Gary Murrell, he gave official support to a plan to euthanize 900 inmates at the Oregon State Institution for the Feeble-Minded as a cost-saving measure. These are just a handful of the most egregious things Martin is remembered for. On the other hand, we do have him to thank for the federal government's decision to build the Bonneville Dam and establish the Bonneville Power Administration in 1934. Ironically, his attempts to reserve the benefits of Bonneville for his plutocrat friends was a significant factor in his eventual downfall. But Oregon and America would have to wait a long time for that downfall, and a lot of damage would get done before it happened. Charles Henry Martin was born near the town of Grayville in southern Illinois during the American Civil War. He was the youngest of ten children with two older brothers, and his father was determined that his oldest boy would pursue a military career. Charles was happily pursuing his goal of becoming a gentleman farmer and writer when the unthinkable happened. His two older brothers drowned in the Wabash River. One of them got in trouble, the other dove in to save him, and both perished. A titanic clash of wills ensued, but in the end the old man had his way, and Charles reluctantly went off to West Point. Charles had a rough time at West Point, characterized at first by extreme homesickness and misery, but eventually he graduated 19th in a class of 65. He was assigned to an infantry regiment stationed in Fort Vancouver just across the river from Portland. During the decade in which he was stationed in Vancouver, Martin put down roots in the Portland area. In 1897, he married a Portland girl, Louise Jane Hughes, daughter of Portland attorney Ellis G. Hughes. The very next year, when the Spanish-American War broke out, the young officer, by now a captain, was sent to the Philippines to help organize with the Filipino rebels' resistance to the Spanish. Shortly after that, when the Boxer Rebellion broke out in China, he was dispatched to China to help with that. These operations, especially the experience in China, where the allied European and American troops storming through the Chinese countryside looking for rebelling quote-unquote boxers adopted a sort of kill em all and let god sort them out attitude, seems to have crystallized Martin's attitudes toward members of other ethnic groups into frank disdain. In this, he was hardly unique among imperial-age military men— When it's one's job to kill people, thinking of them as subhuman beasts to be eradicated rather than as brother men makes that job a lot more psychologically tolerable. And that kind of reductive, dehumanizing thinking can and did become a lifelong habit for an entire generation of British, French, and American military men, not to mention the Italian and German ones, of course. Following the Boxer Rebellion, Martin returned to the States and served in various functions with great discipline and competence, much of it in the Portland area. In 1913, the Army lent him to the limping, ramshackle Oregon National Guard so that he might instill some proper military discipline into it. He did. In 1916, he was deployed to reinforce General John Pershing in his operations against Pancho Villa in Mexico. And then the U.S. entered the First World War. Martin, by then a full-bird colonel, was temporarily promoted to brigadier general and put in charge of training camps, and it is in this capacity that he earned the nickname Iron Pants. His success in breaking down recruits to build them back up as soldiers led to Martin being given a particularly noteworthy assignment near the end of the war, an assignment that unquestionably represents the ugliest stain on his career and one of the uglier stains on the history of the state of Oregon. The military authorities had a problem that they wanted his help with. It seemed that the African-American soldiers who had signed up to go in France and fight had been treated as equals by the French rather than as subhumans. Despite increasingly desperate attempts by white American officers to induce the French to adopt a proper attitude of arrogance and disdain toward them, the black doughboys were enjoying an unprecedented level of social freedom and acceptance. The worry was that they had gotten used to this and would use their new status as war heroes to demand similar equality upon their return to the States, and we couldn't have that, now could we? What was needed, according to the military authorities, was a reindoctrination clinic of sorts, under the guise of training— And who better to administer that training than old iron pants? Martin himself had no use for blacks, opining many times that they were inferior in every way to himself and his white friends and was thoroughly on board with the plan to, quote, put them back in their place. And thus did Charles Henry Martin, future governor of the state of Oregon, become the central figure in one of the most shameful events in American military history. The deliberate, systematic breaking of the spirit of an entire divisional cohort of American combat veterans and war heroes. The black veterans were given the most degrading duties Martin could find for them, including cleaning out toilet pits, burying rotting corpses, and the kind of meaningless rock-breaking busywork one associates with prison chain gangs. They were worked all day and given no liberty to leave the camp. Meanwhile, Martin and his staff cultivated rumors back home that they had been running amuck in France raping French girls by the dozens, and Martin openly referred to them as the rapist division. An investigation later revealed that for the entire war just two charges of rape were made against members of this division. It is worth noting that Martin, after the war, blamed the low status of this quote unquote training assignment for the fact that his temporary promotion to brigadier general was not made permanent after the war. Perhaps lingering resentment of that is why, after the war, Martin filed a report that would become the core of the U.S. Army's policy on African American soldiers from early 1920s until the early years of the Second World War. It was designed to minimize blacks' access to the kind of combat roles in which they might distinguish themselves as heroes, to avoid having black officers over the rank of first lieutenant, and most of all, to ensure that no white soldier or officer ever had to take an order from any black man of any rank whatever. Martin's army career ended with his retirement in 1927. He left the army a very different man than he had been when he entered it. A merciless disciplinarian with a worshipful attitude toward vested authority and a growing fear of communism, he was already starting to show signs of the General Jack D. Ripper-style paranoia that his political career would reveal after his return to civilian life. And we'll talk about that political career in next week's column. Key sources in this week's column included a book by Gary Murrell, and the Oregon Historical Quarterly from winter of 1999. That's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 500 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Other Offbeat Oregon goodies include an active Facebook page, a Twitter feed, a ton of historic photos, and a bunch more stuff, plus a book, including visuals for today's show and full citations to sources. All these things are accessible via our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Facara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now.